Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Ben Bankus. Ben is a stand-up comedian and podcaster born right here in Toronto. He has been performing stand-up since 2011 and has been part of Mark Breslin's Yuck Yucks comedy lineup since 2019. Ben has been headlining clubs across Canada and has amassed a very solid social media following as well as via his live stand-up performance available on YouTube. Welcome, Ben, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hey, uh, I'm good. I'm in Toronto, beautiful city that's kind of not as beautiful as it was, but it's still beautiful. We're all unearthing ourselves from the snow, but you, you survived. Yes. I want to ask you, how is life on the road as a working comic? I think you're uh, between stops right now. Life on the road is good. Yeah, the tour is not, uh, it hasn't really started yet. We're going to Sudbury soon, and then we're going from Sudbury to Ottawa, and then we're going from Ottawa to Van uh, Victoria, BC, and then to Surrey, and then Vancouver, and then we're going to Kelowna, and then we're going to Calgary and Edmonton, and Fort McMurray and Red Deer, and then Winnipeg. We're finishing off basically that leg. Fantastic. And is this your kind of first time with an extended tour or is this uh, just another time out on the road for you? For me, this is the first time doing a tour where I'm selling tickets specifically for me. So I've done a Western tour before, whereas like a Yuck Yucks tour, basically we're just selling Yuck Yucks and people come to see Yuck Yucks. They don't really know who they're seeing. So that's that's what makes it really exciting is that People are coming to see me and, you know, we've had a few shows, a few venues actually cancel on us almost last minute and some just recently we had a venue cancel on us about a month before the show was supposed to happen, a month and a half after we booked it. You know, it's it's kind of getting people excited, even though it's annoying and stressful for me because I have to change venues and look for other options. But um, the fans are excited and they know, they know what to expect. And uh, I assume you have to fill out your toolkit here. You're not just showing up on the night of the performance. You have to, as you say, arrange the venues, arrange the travel. Are you Mr. Everything? Or And I, I guess it's good skills to have. Yeah, right now I'm kind of Mr. Everything in terms of booking everything. And I, I make a lot of content online. I do the majority of that myself in terms of the writing. And, the you know, I have somebody else hold the camera if it's me on, on camera. But, you know, I edit it all. And then on top of that, doing, you know, all the shows and putting them together and putting them on my website and managing the, you know, Facebook events and all that kind of stuff. So it is a, it's a full-time job, 100%. I never not working pretty much. And uh, let's get some context to understand how you turn this into a career and not just a hobby. Let's go all the way back at the Ben Banka <laughs> story. What neighborhood did you grow up in? And maybe you want to talk a little about the path to making stand-up comedy a career. For sure. I grew up downtown Toronto. I grew up in the Annex, Bloor and Bathurst, right behind Bathurst Station, actually, on a street called Albany Ave, and grew up there until I was about nine, and we moved. My parents separated, got divorced, and we moved. My mom moved to DuPont and Christie, so still very Toronto, still pretty much downtown. It's like almost, I don't know, it's almost midtown. It's almost the West End, but still downtown. And So I always kind of wanted to do acting. And my dad is a violinist. My dad's a violinist in the Toronto Symphony. And so I played violin since I was like three years old, like forced into it until I was about 12. Um, and I quit because I started playing hockey when I was like 10 or nine. So I, I didn't want to be a violin nerd anymore, kind of, and wanted to play hockey. 
but I was I still loved the performance aspect of it. And when I was playing hockey, I would always be saying stupid stuff in the locker room, trying to get the guys to laugh, get their attention. You know, if something weird happened, I would always mention it, and you know, in the game and make fun of it or make fun of the the other team. It wasn't until you know when I was 15, 14, 15, I actually started writing jokes. Like I got a book and I would write jokes in it because I would take the bus from Toronto to St. Catharines to visit. My dad had a, had a second place in St. Catharines where I would go visit him and I would always listen to Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and George Carlin and, and all these prolific comedians on the bus. And, you know, all those comedians I was actually introduced to by my mom and my grandma who had always let me watch, um, you know, late night TV, David Letterman, and introduced me to all these comics. I, I, I was a fan of... Thomas the Train, Thomas the Tank Engine as a child, and I don't know if people know this, but George Carlin was the uh, the voice of that show. He he actually narrated that show, and I believe he played like many like certain characters' voices in the show. And I would always laugh, and my mom would say, "You know, he's a comedian. He's actually really dirty, and he says really bad stuff." And I was like, "What? He's, this is a kids' show. I don't get it." But then when I was you know sixteen and stuff, I would listen to it. And then 16 years old, I'm, you know, kind of lost a bit as a lot of 16 year olds are, I'm, you know, I'm smoking pot, um, I'm skipping class, I'm kind of becoming a bad kid. And one of my teachers noticed that, uh, Mr. Probst at Harvard Collegiate. Shout out to, to Harvard. Uh, shout out Harvard Collegiate. It's a great school. Uh, as long as you don't get kicked out, which I didn't, but <laughs> I had sure. friends that I had friends that could get kicked out, but Mr. Probes kind of noticed, I mean, multiple teachers probably noticed that I was skipping class and doing stupid stuff, but he was the one who had a good idea, which was, Hey, I want to do a play and I want you to star in it. You want to act? And I was kind of just like looking at my notebook, sad, like drawing, doodling, looking up going, yeah, I do. And that I think really kind of sent me on the, in the direction of doing comedy as a living. I mean, cause once I got on stage and I was doing acting and I was getting laughs, all I would think about is, can we just get everybody else off this stage so I can just tell some <laughs> jokes from my notebook? Yeah. Um, and I would imagine that. I'd stand on stage and I'd imagine that, okay, these people are here to see me and I'm doing stand-up. And, you know, so I kept doing plays, grade 11 and 12. Grade 11, I won an award of excellence for the Sears Drama Festival. And the next year, our play itself won an award. And then in first year university, I, I ended up getting into Queens University, you know, not because my grades were so good. They were, they were good, but my, um, you know, whatever story you have to write like a kind of essay to get into some of those schools. So I wrote an essay about all the extracurriculars I want to do and maybe starting comedy clubs, like a, like a social club at the school and things like that. And, it, it, you know, once I was in, we worked with Queens TV which was the campus television station. And we started doing comedy there and doing sketches. And I started doing monologues. And then they fired us because they were mad that we were, the other students were upset that we were doing most of the humor and they wanted to partake. But of course they weren't funny, right? So they <laughs> were just, you know, it, it, it was kind of the beginning of the woke culture movement where, you, you know, it was the beginning of, where you could just go and complain and then they would just get rid of whatever you complained about for whatever reason. So we got kicked out of Queen's TV. We started our own thing called 
procrastination and we just made a bunch of sketches and I and at the same time I started doing stand up I looked up online how do I get into stand up how do I start doing stand up and it was like go to open mics okay where are the open mics oh they're in Toronto but I'm in Kingston at Queen's University we'd get on the train and I would go back to Toronto for like a 5 minute open mic spot that was like my first show was actually at a place called PJ O'Brien's used to have a comedy show every Monday and it was like an open mic that you'd sign up for online and it was really exciting all the people were new and you know you you get the email back you're on oh I'm excited I'm gonna go down and try out my stuff and I, you know I remember my first show I went down with my mom and I had three of my friends with me I had a girlfriend at the time and her friend and I went down and I bombed. I, I mean, it was terrible. Probably it was, it was awful. I remember I filmed it professionally, like an idiot, and um, you know, it, it was just, it would just wasn't even close to what I'm e doing now. It was just completely wacky. It was just me going up, pacing around, going, "I got a left knee, a right knee, and a weenie." All right, folks, how are we doing? Like it would, it made no sense. But it got a, f a few like huh, laughs, titters, whatever. Um, but it was enough for me to just go, okay, I'm doing this. I can do this. And I just kept grinding. That was I was 19 when that happened. So I just kept grinding, doing spots. When I go back to Kingston, we started our own open mic at you know a place called Rebel, which I think turned into something else at that point. But like the bar got purchased and they turned it into a nicer place that doesn't do comedy. But they also had a comedy club in Kingston called Time to Laugh and... We, you know, they had open mic nights and then I started doing actually pretty well in my second year at Time to Laugh and they would get me to open for the professionals on the weekend. They'd be like, you know what, you you know, you're free labor. Yeah. Come on down and open for some of the professionals like Mike Wilmot and, you know, Graham Kay and, and some guys who've, you know, now been on Kimmel and, and other things or toured the world, been on Just for Laughs. So, but at the time I was just like, this is, this is amazing. Like I'm opening for a guy who does this for a living. This is crazy. This is so awesome. It, you know, it kept me going. And when I was about 22, I, you know, I'd been doing it for three or four years, three years. And Yuck Yucks is kind of the place you go to try and get work, you know, to try and start your career in Canada, at least. And you go to the amateur nights and you perform. And then if you're funny, they showcase you. It's what they call showcasing, where they basically pick a bunch of the amateurs that they think are maybe ready to be seen by Mark Breslin and, uh, you know, see if they are going to go to the next level, which usually the next level is Wednesday nights. Like you go from doing Tuesday nights, you go to Wednesday nights. So I went and I had a joke about taking a shit at my girlfriend at the time's house. And he hates that. He hates anything to do with like toilet humor. But I, I did well. But after my, after my set, he was like, I hate toilet humor. Never do a joke like that on my stage ever again. I was so terrified. And he was like, but I did like that one joke about being a history major. I had some stupid joke. You know, I'm a history major. So I'm going to be working in one of those big history firms downtown. So I was discouraged because I didn't get signed. I didn't get moved to Wednesdays. I went over to absolute comedy they put let me do a couple weekends for free in kingston and in toronto and then they didn't sign me they're like well our roster's full and i was like i don't know what i'm gonna do like i don't i had a girlfriend at the time i wanted to make money i was scared 
uh, I was doing, you know, junk removal, which in the summer was like 800 bucks cash a week. And then in the winters, like a hundred bucks, it was bad. So I applied to a bunch of jobs, sales jobs and got a job selling photocopiers. And what's funny about that is the photocop, one of the guys from the photocopier company messaged me two days ago and he goes, uh, did you know Jordan Peterson's following you on Instagram or on, on Twitter? I was like, no. Oh, well, that's crazy, right? And I was like, how are you? But yeah, so at the photocopier company, I remember everybody was just excited that I was a comedian and they were like, just do comedy. And I'm at, I'm like, nah, I'm a, I'm a salesman now, you know? Screw comedy. I do sales. And so I'd sell a bunch of, I sold like $100,000 worth of photocopiers in like seven months, which isn't that many because some of them are like $20,000. They're like serious photocopiers for like offices. This is before like super woke corporate stuff where they just got rid of a lot of those photocopiers, which by the way, the photocopier companies are still involved in getting rid of the photocopiers and uploading all of the papers onto the cloud and all that stuff. So they, they're still, they're still thriving somehow Xerox and that I worked for Rico. Yeah. I remember I was like, Oh, I got asked to do a show at young and Dundas square for four twenty. There's going to be 5,000 people there. I don't know if I'm going to do it. They're like, you got to do it, do it. What are you talking about? And so I did it. And I, and then I realized like, Oh, I need to keep doing comedy. I can't just not do comedy because I'm selling photocopiers. And then I got recruited by another company to do commercial real estate. Um, and they basically paid me a salary to get my real estate license and then sell do office leasing so it's like a tenant rep like i would represent businesses for their real estate leasing needs essentially or if they wanted to purchase a property but usually people just lease right so while i was doing that for four years four and a half years i was doing comedy pretty much every night and then it got to the point where i was making good money at real estate you know i got to the point where i was making like almost 100k but I was, I would just come into the office at like noon or like 1 p.m. tired. I wouldn't care because I was just out the night before at doing three or four shows different at different spots, killing. And people are like, you're the funniest dude ever. I'm like, I don't want to go to work tomorrow because I don't <laughs> care about this job. And eventually that kind of, you know, eventually I got the opportunity again while I was doing commercial real estate to get seen by Mark Breslin. So... There's a guy, a good friend of mine named Ronan Geisler. He's actually the, uh, he runs the Jewish Comedy Festival. But he did a show at Yuck Yucks called Kosher Kush, which was a Jewish marijuana themed show, cannabis show. So it's like half young people, half, you know, old people basically. And Mark came to that show and I wasn't signed with Yuck Yucks or anything like that, but I was on that show and I killed so hard. That night, did Breslin comes up to me after and he goes, "What do you want to work for Yuck Yucks?" Or <laughs> and he's like, "We're going to showcase you immediately." And I was so excited. And and then the week after that, I went to the one of the guys who runs the amateur night in the showcase and books the shows. And he was like, "Oh, we're full. Like we don't have enough room for you. You know, if you want to go and move to Halifax, I can get you some spots in Halifax." I'm like, "What?" Mark Breslin just told me that, you know, he's going to, so I emailed and they, oh, no, no, you're going to be on the showcase. Don't worry. You know, you always have to push. You can't just, like a lot of comics are just, oh, well, nothing happened. So I guess we'll, you know, you get, what, what's going on here? So I, I get on the showcase and I absolutely smash so hard on that showcase. 
And uh, like other comics were bombing so badly that Mark Breslin was actually yelling at them for them to get off stage, which must have that's painful when you're actually auditioning for a job and the owner of the company is telling you to get off stage because you <laughs> suck. But I killed and he, he signed me that night. He took me upstairs to the green room and with the SVP of operations at the time and Ryan who's the booker. And they basically were like, yeah, we're going to sign you and you're going to start working and. So that was 2019 in April-ish, and literally a day after that, I think, or two days, I started doing shows. Like, I would just go and do a guest spot at, you know, at the time, Yuck Yuck's Vaughn, which was basically beside the David Busters and Vaughn. As a newly signed comic, you can do guest spots for free wherever you want, right? So I would do that. And uh, a lot of comics wouldn't do that because they didn't want to hustle. They were like, well, I'm not driving there for free. I'm not driving. Mm -hmm. I would drive two hours for free. I drove to Niagara Falls to do the spots for the night and then drive home. And, you know, just to get better, right? Just to keep always getting better, which is really the story of the comedian, story of the artist in general. But, you know, nowadays especially, it's with mental health and how awful it is out there and especially for comedians, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, comedians, everybody knows that the sad clowns, but we have people like Joe Rogan and, and other, you know, Tom Segura and other uh, idols that have shown that, you know, you have to work on your mental health too. I mean, so Tom Segura, if you know Tom Segura, is a huge, huge name. He lived in a car with his wife for years, traveling, doing comedy, not having, and, you know, and then when he really blew up, you know, he lost a ton of weight and started working out really hard and going to the gym and, and concentrating on health and fitness. And that, and that's something that, you know, nowadays I do. Obviously, I eat like crap sometimes and and do stupid stuff or drink too much. But I'm always going back to, okay, let's go back to the gym. Let's go do a sauna. Let's take care of myself because I, I know that if I take care of myself, the comedy will take care of itself because I'll be alive and I'll be able to be, if I'm alive, I could be funny. <laughs> that know? is necessary. Well, Ben, let's reset here. You're making yeah. the point. You really got to grind away. So April, 2019, you sign with Yuck Yucks. You are working your butt off. You're doing seven to 12 shows a week. As you note, everything from open mic, Yuck Yuck shows, wherever they are. In November, 2019, you take the big leap. You quit your job in commercial real mm -hmm. estate to do comedy full time, move home with your mom to save money Everything is going great, and suddenly, boom, COVID. Yeah. Well, I got a double whammy, too, because part of the reason I moved home, too, was my mom, one day I went to visit her, and she had fallen, and she just her entire arm was black and blue, and her, and her face was black and blue. She'd fallen, and, and it was just really bad. I wanted her to go to the hospital. She hadn't told me that she had fallen. I was very concerned. So when I then I started living there a couple months later and, you know, just noticing her mood and her depression and, and stuff like that. And I was very concerned and took her to the doctor and the doctor essentially said, like, I don't think this is depression anymore. This is like she has dementia. Your mom has dementia, I believe, um, based on this small test that I did. And then so the actual test for dementia uh, was done for her February 4th, 2020 which is my birthday, by the way. 
not 2020, 1992. But uh, February 4th is my birthday. I got the call February 3rd that, hey, do you want to go actually to the specialist tomorrow, your birthday? We can get her in quicker. And I was like, well, of course, you know, sucks it's my birthday, but that's just what it is. And then a month later, it was lockdown. So it was basically, hey, your mom has dementia and you're locked down with her for X amount of time. You know, right before the lockdown, I was killing it with comedy, you know, was very close in my mind to just saying, hey, let's just move to New York. Let's get going. Let's get out of here. There were other comics doing that. And there were other comics from New York that I was working with that were Canadian that were, you know, coming back to Canada to do some comedy work. They were saying, you got to come to New York. You're funny. Come. And then, of course, lockdown. So, I mean, I started an alcohol delivery company. I bought a franchise of, and uh, like, yeah, I would deliver alcohol to people during lockdown and you know I had a couple employees delivering alcohol for me and that kind of fell apart because I stopped caring because in June of 2020 I started a comedy show in a park it was the first comedy show in North America since lockdown that's confirmed because Dave Chappelle did he claims to have the first comedy show after the lockdown which was if you go and look it's a day after mine, which is crazy. Like it was released. Obviously the footage was released way later, but it came out a day after, uh, or sorry, they, they recorded it a day after my first show had been done at Christie Pitts park. So we, t we basically just came up with the idea. Let's just take a speaker and a light and a little battery power generator that would power the light and the speaker's wireless, and let's just do a comedy show in the park. And we did, and people loved it. The first night was amazing. There was We went to a park where people would already be sitting outside. That was the only thing you could do mm -hmm. in lockdown. And I don't even think that was, like, quote-unquote, allowed, the, the, you know, to have that many people sitting on a hill, but they kind of, you know, didn't care. But as soon as it became, oh, we're actually doing comedy, that's when people started caring, right? So the first night, nobody cared. We just had a great time. Everything went smoothly. Everybody laughed. People were like, this is amazing. I'm coming back next week. I can't wait. And then the next week, we did it again. And of course, bylaw officers showed up. There was a bylaw officer there named uh, Officer Coward. That was his last name. Legitimately, his last name was Coward. You can't make this stuff up. No, you can't. I, I have his business card somewhere that I kept because it was just so hilarious. His name was Officer Coward, and he had braces. He was like 40, but he had braces, which, you know, I don't judge, but I wanted to make fun of it because I was a stand-up comic. So I went on stage, and I was like, this guy with braces is trying to tell me that it would shut down the show. And people were like, no, don't shut it down. And we're like, we're not shutting it down for anything. So he called the police, and like four squad cars showed up to Christy Pitt's police started putting on like vests it looked like they were about to do like crowd control because there's probably like maybe 150 200 people at the time on the hill and uh they didn't they didn't approach us we kept the show going they could hear us killing like we were the laughs were big and we and i had a bunch of comics on the show very diverse um group of comics eventually the bylaw guy just came up to me and was like okay we're not shutting it down but here's a ticket for x amount of money it was a it was it was $2,300 total. Yep. It was like three tickets added up. So what did we do? We went online and we started a GoFundMe. Russell Peters retweeted it. Doug Stanhope, very uh, prolific comic in the States, retweeted it. 
and we we basically made that money back. You know, we were able to put that towards continuing the show and getting a lawyer and stuff like. And then we moved the show. We moved to another park called Bickford Park, and we were there for like eleven weeks or twelve. Yeah, twelve. Yeah, eleven weeks. And um, for the first five weeks, the cops didn't show up, and then they started coming. And then they started pretending like they were like into it, and yeah, we're just protecting your like you guys, making sure you're not dr- drinking too much, and there's no open liquor. And then it just slowly progressed into um, them shutting it down. But the actual story behind that was there was a ton of comedians in the comedy community that were, for lack of a better term, very woke. And they were very pro-lockdown, pro-restriction. And they were very anti-me. And not only was I doing this show in the park against what, you know, so-called restrictions... And gathering people and, you know, there was comics saying he's spreading COVID through like, you know, he's spreading it through the people, the ma- all this stuff. And, and they were there was comedians emailing and calling the police trying to get the show shut down on top of there. Uh, you know, I'm sure there were also some people in the community, like certain people that could hear the show at night. It was one one day at night, by the way, and it was we didn't even start that late. We started like seven or eight, you know. But there was like there would be one, you know. How dare you? Apparently, I never met these people. The people from the houses in Bickford Park would come out and sit there with lawn chairs, and they would take videos, and they go, "Ben Bankus educating my kids about comedy," and you know, we would all. It seemed like we we're all having a good time. So my theory, whether it's right or wrong, is that there was mostly comedians behind the canceling of that show it was fine I, I was happy with it because i by the time they canceled it they were already basically opening up venues yeah so by the time they canceled it we were transitioning this new audience that we'd created and met in a park to coming to venues like at first we started the first place we started doing comedy inside during the pandemic was the annex social which is a bar at dupont and and bathurst i knew the owner he's a cool guy grew up in the area as well and uh, yeah, we just started doing shows there outside. Actually, no, the first ones were inside, but then they, when they did the new restrictions, we would do shows in the winter. Throughout the winter of 2020 uh, and 2021, we would do shows outside with our jackets on, with, with space heaters, and that's just what we did. We never, so, so from June 2020, we never stopped doing comedy, or at least I didn't. Well, as a postscript, Ben, I have to ask you, what happened to those $2,300 in uh, fines? Did uh, did they eventually get resolved? Yes. So what happened was, you know, I we, we used the money to get a lawyer. And then by the, when, we fi- when the shows got shut down at Bickford Park, I was served with like multiple form, uh, you know, fines. But they, were, they weren't set fines. They were like, we're going to fine you something. We're, you're going to find out later what it is. So they a total they wanted to find me about seven thousand dollars. Wow! And we only raised about twenty five hundred or three grand, and then um, so basically paid for the lawyer, and then the the fine ended up being something much smaller. It was like six hundred bucks total or something that we paid. So you're able to get it closed off. Yeah, time to we, move on. Exactly. As that you took, know, that took about a year though. Well, I was gonna say it's not a quick process. I'm sure. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Ben Bankus, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. 
We've got other big-time comedians, including singing impressionist Andre Philippe Gagnon, Bizarre's John Viner, Yuck Yuck's impresario Mark Breslin, Paul Reiser, and Tom Farley, sharing memories of his brother, Saturday Night Live megastar Chris Farley. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. But as you note, with the lockdowns easing up and now you're back to performing, this ties in nicely to how do you become a comedian and get a following in 2023? And a lot more of it is social media and online. Why don't you talk a little about that? Because you are known for a very strong following on social media. Thank you. Yeah. Well, when I quit commercial real estate, I remember thinking, okay, I need to start podcasts. I need to start sketches, videos. My, at first, my podcast, my podcast is called The Bankist Show. You can check it out. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Go to my website, find it there, benbankist.com, where you can find tickets to all my live shows as well. But I started that right away when I quit in November 2019, and I started making little videos, commentary on things that had been going on. And one of the first videos that I had that went viral and was shared by Six Buzz which, as you know, is kind of the Toronto mecca for social media. And they're kind of like the Canadian world star hip-hop in a way, for people who don't know, but, you know, more so Toronto issues as well and Canadian issues. So they posted a video that I made making fun of the people who were offended that Don Cherry got fired. And so it was a video for both sides, similar to how my videos are now. I mean... People on the far edges of either side are probably going to be upset at my videos no matter what. But it was a video of me pretending to be a small-town Canadian Ottawa Senators fan. I had an Ottawa Senators hat with a bunch of signatures on it from Ottawa Senators players that I had gotten when I was a kid. So I put that on, and I basically said, did the Canadian accent to an oh, yeah, well, I'm going to be canceling the cable. We're canceling Rogers Cable, and we're canceling all of you know they put got rid of Don Cherry, and it was just a funny video, and it went super viral, and I got a bunch of followers. I got like a thousand followers, so it was up to like sixteen hundred followers, right, from seven hundred or something. Yeah, I realized, holy, sh holy shit, like I can do this, and you know, in conjunction, you know, that was before lockdown. That was before all this uh, park stuff, and. I started making videos about the situation that was happening and, and, you know, it really divided people. Like I remember being pissed off that lo about lockdown and saying how this, you know, I didn't agree with it and I lost like 200 followers and they were all peers of mine that comedians that were like, how dare he? And, and even in the States, this was happening. Like comedians were still going on tour, for instance, in places where there was no lockdowns, Dakota, the Midwest, uh, you know, Texas, Florida, and other comedians would, would basically slander them and say, how dare you go and make money while this is happening? So, you know, I, would, I, didn't, I obviously think that people need to make money. You can't just say don't make money because of a any certain reason, really. Like even in wartime, you need to be able to make money uh, as an individual. I, I, you know, it's just, I mean, Louis C.K. performed in Kiev, okay? Mm. Uh, I think a week into the Russian invasion. So either way, I started making videos and, and commentary about the pandemic and it struck a nerve with a lot of people. I started making fun of politicians who were on TV at the time. And I mean, they're still on TV every day, but at the time they were on TV every day, all 
day. I don't know if you people even remember or want to remember what was going on, but we had politicians on TV every single day doing press conferences on every level of government from the federal government to the Ontario government, provincial government, municipal governments. Everybody was making a speech every single day and they had the, you know, the health person and they had this person and that person and it was just overwhelming and insane and also they started the new trend of every single speech had a interpreter for the for the deaf which i mean generally wasn't really a thing on every single speech it was maybe on certain speeches like you know state of the union type things maybe but it became this thing so and and people found it funny because it was a little ridiculous and some of the people doing those um, sign languages, just like they were badly dressed and, and it just looked very bizarre, right? So we made fun of all that kind of stuff and people started catching on slowly. At first, lots of backlash. But nowadays, like a lot of the pe- a lot of my fans now, I'm sure in March 2020 and for probably a whole year or two, were very, if they saw my content then, they might have been like, he's he doesn't care about people. Right. But now they've kind of come to the realization like the set, you know, the dust is settled and they're like, well, actually, that was very funny and needed at the time for a lot of people, because people's regardless of what you think of, of the pandemic, people's mental health was seriously damaged and they needed something to laugh at. And I'm sorry, but they needed to laugh at the people who are making their life very serious. Well, you got so many followers through these videos. I'm wondering about the connection then to YouTube, uh, one of your performances please wear a mask this was recorded live available on youtube do you find that was a great way for people to kind of get entrance into your comedy world so to speak and then it translates to them coming to live performances like your upcoming tour or was youtube kind of just a test for you that you said i'd see what the waters are like well i used to have more videos on youtube and i kind of streamlined it a bit because i wanted people to focus on the stand-up and my podcast and not necessarily have all of the same content as Instagram or Twitter or Facebook on YouTube. Please Wear a Mask was a culmination of all of my best bits from before the pandemic and all of the best bits that I made up during the pandemic. And I'd been doing them over and over for, you know, we many of those bits started in the park and, you know, they took them on the road, then went on tour, like my first actual tour, which you asked me earlier of the, when we were just selling tickets as yuck yucks, you know, I did all those jokes, working those jokes. And it, you know, I got them to the point where I was like, I need to make a special, I need to make an album. And we recorded it at yuck yucks and that the comedians who are loyal and, and, and like me and who actually have followings, you know, really helped me out. I want to shout out some of them like Ryan Long, who was just on Joe Rogan, actually, um, you know, retweeted and reposted my special Danny Paulus, Chuck, um, reposted, retweeted my special. And, um, I think there was some more comedians as well that, uh, but th- those were two of the main ones with big followings that really helped the special get out there. And yeah, we, we have, I think over 30,000 views now on the special and people who learn about me and then go watch the special really like the special. When I watch the special, I've seen it so many times when I was editing it and I'm just like, I'm sick of these jokes, but I, I really like some of them and some of them have gone quite viral. But my thing is 
you know, I get stressed out just thinking about those jokes because I go, oh, Christ, like, I don't do those anymore. But they killed so hard. So part of because there's a lot of comedians in Toronto or in Canada, at least, that will do the same jokes. They've been doing the same jokes for 20 years, you know, and they don't really have followings and they just kind of and, and they're worried that, oh, well, if I don't if I do a new joke, it might not kill hard enough. It might not be good enough. But that's not the new mentality and that's not the mentality you can have if you want to be really successful because you have to have new jokes because if somebody's coming to see me, the likelihood is they've seen Please Wear a Mask, they've seen all those jokes, and if I do any of them for them live when I fly to their city, they're going to be pissed off. Uh, yeah. You know, Maybe they won't at first. Maybe they'll be like, well, it was cool to see. But Louis C.K. talks about this. If they come to see you once and then they come to see you, they'll come to see you again. But if you do the same material the second time, they'll never come to see you again. Yep. But if they come to see you once and then they come to see you the next time and it's all new material, they'll always come back because they'll know that you provide new content and new material. And and so that's that's one of the biggest that's like the iceberg of my career or like whatever that analogy is where the icebergs bigger underneath the, the water is mm-hmm. that's the time spent just creating stand-up material by living life writing you know the process like i do is is not completely orthodox but i uh it's also not completely unorthodox but i basically i try to write journal entries basically flushing as much out of my system as i can so that i can throughout the day have thoughts that aren't me being pissed off at this or that or me being confused about this or that of my career i organize my career and thoughts in the in those journal entries so to speak and then i'm able to come up with material as i'm working out or as i'm you know driving or walking the dogs then it just comes and i write it on my phone and then i try it that night and then slowly those jokes expand then i'll forget about the joke for two weeks and i'll remember it again then it's funnier now so, but that just takes so much time and it's so much stand up. And like now that I have a following, sometimes I'll do shows and people are like, why didn't you tell us you were in Oshawa? I'm like, well, because I didn't want you to be there because I, <laughs> it's part I of wanted my process. To, yeah. I want to perform for people who don't know who I am <laughs> and make sure this stuff is actually funny. And then when I come to you guys, it's, it's, you know, and, th- and that's, I, I'm actually kind of cherishing that in a way because I think in the States, like yuck yucks allows that process to happen in the sense that people will come out to a show even if they have no idea who the comics are just because it's yuck yucks yeah and then you can try and they don't know who i am because they don't know who what comedy is they don't follow any comedians on instagram they don't have instagram or whatever the case may be that's nice because i can try out material where you know what i'm at some point i don't think that will be possible i mean hopefully that's the goal, right? But like people like Tim Dillon or, or somebody in the States, you know, that they seldom get to perform for people who don't know that who they are en masse. Like they might go to have shows where certain people don't know who they are in the audience, but for the whole crowd not to, that's it's a it's that's kind of very helpful for comics. Well, as you know, you can't just rely on your greatest hits and obviously you have to it sounds like every night you have to kind of reinvent yourself. You might have new people, maybe the whole audience brand new. So your permission to laugh tour. Heads out, Ben, and you're going to do a quite a wide geography. After this tour is complete, do you have plans, or uh, what's next for you, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I'm going to try and keep this tour going as long as I can 
for people listening, I don't know when they're listening, but you know, these this tour is happening in 2023. That's the year, right? So hopefully <laughs> yep. we'll keep the tour. Like I'm going to keep booking places and uh eventually hopefully it'll end in sometime in the summer and then, you know, we'll see what's what's next, really. Like I think that I mean my my goals are, you know, I want to perform at uh, Scotiabank Arena. Yep. Uh, or Madison Square Garden, maybe not Scotiabank. I feel like Scotiabank might not allow me there. Um, <laughs> uh, based on one of the videos I just made about uh, trying to run for mayor of Toronto, which is also something that we're doing um, low key. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're making videos running for mayor of Toronto as a joke, but we might actually put our name in the hat. Mm. So Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ben, as we close up today, it would be helpful. Tell us where we can follow you and where we can find out where you're next appearing. For sure. If you want to check me out, benbankus.com, at benbankus, B-A-N-K-A-S-2, the number two on Instagram. So benbankus2 on Instagram, benbankus on Twitter, benbankus comedy on Facebook and YouTube. You can catch my live shows by going to benbankus.com slash live dash shows or just go to benbankus.com, click on the live show link. And if you want to listen to my podcast, it's available on all platforms, uh, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. You can find that benbankus.com slash podcast or um, at the link, link tree in my bio on my Instagram, folks. Excellent. Great summary. It was very nice to meet you. And I want to wish you uh, continued success as you move forward, Ben. Thank you so much. Really nice meeting you too, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Ben Bankus, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Kids. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. 
us. Or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell Network. Or on our YouTube channel. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Because, because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do. do.